Meet Dan Chasen, former U.S. sergeant deployed to Afghanistan, who went on to become a United States Senate foreign policy aide. Over the years, Dan's experience granted him a devastating view of how even the wildest personal beliefs reformed changed over time or staunchly remain unchanged. Towards this end, we will be examining Dan's career in the military and in politics for examples of media disinformation, the life and death consequences of groupthink, how projection works to bring people together against a common foe, and the near impossible task of teasing out the differences between the stories we tell ourselves and the actual facts at hand. We will also look at what it really means to step into the opposing person's perspective and the importance of promoting discourse among those with whom we disagree. Please note, some of Dan's recollections from his experience in the military may prove disturbing or upsetting to those who have experienced war. My name is Benjamin Rusick, licensed marriage and family therapist, and this is my podcast, Look, Just Tell Me What to Do. I am a Marin County native. I was born and raised between the redwood trees and the creeks and blackberry bushes of Marin County. But since growing up in Marin, I've kind of lived what I call the uh, the Forrest Gump career path, which is, I feel like I've had nine lives finding my way through politics and the military. Um, right now, I'm a strategic communications consultant in Los Angeles. What does that mean? <laughs> it means, uh, you know, your podcast is called Tell Me What to Do. I, I think my my job title really boils down to tell me what to say. You know, I get companies, political candidates, retail businesses who either need to build their reputation with the public, uh, maybe respond to a crisis or a litigation, PR situation, or more generally kind of promote themselves in a more strategic way. Uh, so they come to, to my firm to sort of get advice on strategic communications. So someone's like, we're in this crazy position. We totally fucked ourselves in the media. We did this thing. We fired this person. We, we right. killed this dog. And we need to tell the world why we're not bad people. Exactly. You said you have, you have a master's in political communication. And you just finished your thesis right. on... Yeah. So I, I wrote a thesis about disinformation. I think it's a defining issue for our country. Certainly in the last few years, if you were to stop 10 Republicans in the street and ask them whether the election was stolen, six of them would say yes. That's amazing. So I think that's that's, a, that's just a symptom of a democracy that is in crisis. And that's sort of perpetuated by two institutions that lack public trust right now, which is the government and the media. So you have people who, because of that, don't trust elections and don't trust public health guidance. It's like a virus almost. Yeah, disinformation is like a virus in that it always needs a host. And the host is... The host is people. It's it's the average. It's, it's your grandpa. It's mm -hmm. your uncle. People are not literate in media. Part of my thesis was that we need to fund and promote media literacy. So you have people who are either new to technology, think about like your boomer uncle, or people who just don't take the time to fully vet the mm -hmm. media that they're consuming and maybe don't have the tools to do that. And so what you get is people who are media illiterate spreading lies to other people who are media illiterate. And it spreads like a virus. So the way to combat that is to make people more media literate. I see. I'll give an example. Please. Someone who I was in the army with posted a story on Facebook that Obama was giving sex dolls to <laughs> pedophiles in prison to like make them more docile, I guess. Like just, oh just to, you know, give them something. I looked at the website 
that this story came from, it was something like governmentsecrets.com. Okay, if you're going to post a news story and the news source is governmentsecrets.com, you should pause. A media literate person would say, oh, this isn't a reputable news source. Right. This isn't a CNN, you know, Fox Digital, ABC. You know, this, this isn't Washington Post. This is a fantasy website. But this person posted it with outrage to Facebook. Right. Other people liked it, commented on it. Other media illiterate people probably shared it. Yeah. This is what I hear from a lot of people. I'll have this discussion with them. I'm like, that's a shitty ass source. Like you're, you're yeah. getting your stuff from crap. They'll say, well, what are your sources? And I'll say, well, you know, Associated Press, CNN, you know, NPR, and they'll stop me. Those are all, those are all fake. And, and, and so this is my question. This is what I ask people. How the hell do you know who to trust? Because the insanity here or the disinformation here, the virus here is that nobody trusts the sources. That's another yeah. form of disinformation that like with COVID, nobody's trusting the vast majority of epidemiologists and scientists in the world. And Fauci is, you know, in, the, in on it and the CDC is in on it and the WHO is in on it and everybody's in on it. They're all trying to control us. And you can put together, I've heard very cohesive argument from the other side about, you know, how it all is. They're all, it's a big, vast conspiracy. And it's like, okay, I can see how you put that together. And then if you really look at their sources and they get the information from really weird spots they pull apart studies in the very in the strangest ways and it would take an enormous amount of energy to sit down with a with a whiteboard and and lots of research and really show them why their argument is deeply flawed so yeah. um, you're kind of an expert in this and wh- wh- how do people know who to trust I've always said it, it would, I think it would be blissful to be a conspiracy theorist uh-huh. because you're always right. <laughs> you, you're always right. You could be shown credible evidence disproving your position. Right. But that doesn't matter because you're right, because you've found an echo chamber that tells you you're right mm-hmm. and, and tells you the story that you want to agree with. I think a lot of people are just, are, they're far gone. They're, there's no bringing a huge segment of the they're population. They're too sick. They're too, they're too insane. They're, they're, insanity they has got them. These they, are the people, they, it, it's like the people who turn down the vaccine, but then when they're on a ventilator, they want it. But they say that about us. They say that we're, we're the ones that are far gone, that we're the ones who are in the bubble and that we're the ones who don't yeah. know shit and that we're the ones who've been brainwashed. Right. I don't think we can bring them all back into reality. What I do think is that we can start kids off the right way with media literacy education. What does that mean? I think that we can teach children, like I think the government should fund in public schools media literacy courses. See, and now the other side is saying, oh, he's going to start brainwashing kids. And I'm not saying that, but that's, that <laughs> yeah. is truly what would, that would go through their minds right. um so what is media literacy like it sounds like you're saying we're bringing sanity to and i keep using this word because this is this is really what we're talking about today is like yeah. how can we bring sanity what how does somebody know when a source is a good source how do you how do you have the the gravitas the wherewithal the sanity the intellect to know ah this 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 source from et cetera et cetera, et cetera is yeah. works you need to be able to discern credible sources from sources that aren't and I think that that is an ability that comes with being media literate. How do you do that, Dan? <laughs> what makes a good source a good source is that it comes from a credible news outlet. How do you discern a credible news outlet? I'm sorry to nail you down. No, no, this is important. I'm going to keep attacking you. Yeah, so I, I just want to make a, a point clear. Dan wants to make a point. I'm going to make a point. We like points. There are some characteristics of news outlets that, to me, sort of distinguish what is a credible source? Do they issue corrections? Do they admit when they have made a mistake? Do they clearly delineate between news and opinion? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a big problem. There's a lot of people who are consuming Fox News opinion on mm-hmm. cable news every night with the assumption that they're watching news. It's not news. Can you give an example of like the difference between those two things? <laughs> well, of course, our, you know, our friend Tucker Carlson and then that blonde who, who told LeBron to shut up and dribble. <laughs> <laughs> It's what you're getting is 
Tucker Carlson's take. These are takes. This is not news reporting. Right. So when he decides to cover, you know, Black Lives Matter protests and give 100% of coverage to looters, Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's a decision he made to rile up his viewers and give them the violent kind of news porn that they're looking for. Right. He's not giving an accurate picture. He's giving the frame of the picture that he finds favorable for his viewers. Sure. And then do they use real experts? If they're doing a news story on the pandemic, are Mm -hmm. are they bringing in you know, one of these uh, personalities like the MyPillow guy Mm -hmm. or are they bringing in doctors, virologists, Mm -hmm. you know, scientists, people who have a background in whatever the subject is. But the media is all bought and paid for. They all work for big corporations and George Soros and Bill Gates. They're not biased. What are you talking about? Yeah. And I think the people who think that are- But how do you show that they're not bought and paid for? How do you show that they're not working for George Soros? But I also think it's important to point out you need to also look for what characteristics that stand out with fake news outlets. Fake news outlets tend to have typos. Mm-hmm. They tend to have weird names. They don't always put the reporter's name on the byline. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, are they blatantly opinionated again? And also, like, what's the look and feel? If, if you look at these websites mm-hmm. and it looks like a cash for gold site <laughs> that happens to have news headlines <laughs> squeezed in between, right? you know, like weird pawn shop ads yeah there's a certain feel like if you look at um what's that that's that one horrible newspaper it's o oan oan and like you scroll through their stories and there's a, like a little bit of text and a big ad yeah. and then a little bit of text and another big ad that's where they get all their money yeah. and it's just the worst crap you've ever read in your life it's yeah. incredible right and they're the only people saying a particular thing and so people are like oh they're saying the particular thing that i yes. believe in and then they spread it all look 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 let's that thing the thing that i heard you know here yeah it is. you just i mean you just said it that's another key point right like is this the only outlet that's reporting the story yeah because if it was news, then other outlets would be inclined to cover it. Um, uh, well, thanks, Dan. I'm glad we've cleared that up. I'm glad I, I went after you because you, you know, you're you're an expert and you're supposed to know everything. <laughs> I know everything, and you, I just proved it. You just you did. One of my first jobs when I moved to Washington D.C. was I, I moved to D.C. to be a reporter, and I worked at Tucker Carlson's startup company at the time, The Daily Ooh. Caller. Um, I, t- I just I took the first gig I could find. You whore. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and uh, I remember you know our editor took us into the we were in a, a meeting and he told a bunch of us new guys um, and he he gestures like grabbing at his collar and he says your job is to grab people by their emotional collar, mm-hmm. grab people by their emotions, mm-hmm. and stir them up. So I would ask people, if you're reading a news story and it's making you emotional Mm -hmm. and it's evoking anger out of you, Mm -hmm. think about what that reporter's objective was in writing that. Right. I quit that job after two weeks on payroll because they asked me to write a story about Muslim police officers in London discriminating against white people. Me being an objective journalist, I said, okay, I'll write that story. Let me do my research. Mm-hmm. So I'm knowledgeable about it. I did look, I looked into it. I looked at police reports, Twitter conversations, mm-hmm. I, I Google searches. I didn't find anything. Right. I didn't find a single instance of this. <laughs> right. I went home that night and I just thought, I don't think I can go back to work in the morning. Really? I woke up the next morning and I was like, I'm never going back there again. Really? You just quit? I quit. I emailed my editor and uh, I said, hey, thanks for giving me a shot, but this this isn't for me. Um, and he called me. He, he wanted me to come back in. And, and I, I just said, you, you, I, I'm not You gave up whoring. 
I gave early. Her, I, I, gave, I retired from whoring. Yeah. Excellent. Well done. Yeah. So I, I've talked to um, a friend of mine about you know this sort of thing, and he talks about uh, the whole debate, for instance, about whether or not COVID came from a lab. And there's this really excellent article written that appeared in Vanity Fair about a year ago, I think. They went out there, they literally found somebody who had no opinion. I think this is how the article went, and told him to to go forth and do research. And we're not going to, you know, here's some money and go figure it out. And this guy went in and they look, they really break down all the numbers and all the things and all the information and really meticulously like looking at both sides. And in the end of the article, the guy's like, I just don't, there's not enough information. I don't know where it came from. Right. And I find that a lot of times, a lot of these articles like about Wuhan specifically will be this sort of reactionary, there's bats in Wuhan. And it's like, the picture was actually like five years old. And no, the bats weren't there. They were at some other lab. I don't have the specifics with me, but it's this yeah. it's weird, this weird, like sort of stitched together, like that story you wanted to do about white people being discriminated against. Like you, yeah. could, you could have gone far and wide to get little, little threads, I would imagine, oh, yeah. you can always... of information and kind of make this sort of sick tapestry. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I mean, that, and that's a tactic, right? Like they'll find a grain of truth uh-huh. and gain some trust among readers. Right. But that grain of truth is sitting on a mountain of bullshit. Yeah. What are some other examples of disinformation that you can think of concretely? The two biggest right now are that the election was stolen and that mm. COVID isn't real. So give me an example of, of election disinformation. Yeah. So you have people who believe that the Republican election officials in Arizona, Republican election officials in Georgia, people believe that these officials in these Republican states actually conspired to elect Joe Biden. People who believe that volunteers who were counting ballots uh, in the middle of the night were bringing in boxes of harvested ballots and replacing Republican ones. People who think that Donald Trump is still the president. Um, it's 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 kind of sick. Yeah. Like these, it's you're very detached from reality. And do those people tend to all run together? Because there, I, I feel like there's some people who believe the election was stolen, but of course don't think Trump is still president. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a spectrum. There's different degrees. It's like the crazier you get, the craziest it's, people. It's really interesting, isn't it? There's like a spectrum of like you start kind of at the somewhat crazy. Like there was some fraud in the election. I'm not sure right. how much. Then it goes clearly there was fraud, and then it gets worse and worse and worse until you get like yeah, Trump is still president, and JFK or whatever the fuck his name is is going to come back and yeah. be the vice president. Yeah. And then the my pillow guy is going to be, you know, <laughs> he's going to be in the mix somehow. Yeah. Yeah, the my pillow guy will come through and, and provide pillows to all of these people to sleep well at I night want a, because they're one right. of his pillows. I wonder if they're any good. The craziest people are these QAnon supporters. I I can't imagine living a day in their shoes worried that the whole US government is run by a cabal of pedophiles. There's people walking around, people's relatives who I know who believe that Hillary Clinton and Elizabeth Warren that they're, they're witches, running they're witches and they're, they're run a coven. Well, and they're <laughs> that they're selling children yeah. into prostitution. And, and that they're having underground sacrifices. And yeah. Stuff. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Without any credible evidence. You know, when you're a kid, your parents tell you, Don't talk to strangers, don't listen to strangers. These yeah. are people who are just going on Facebook and consuming bullshit from strangers yeah a friend of mine calls it reactionary politics when you see a thing and you just have a a sense of disgust uh, or fear that's they say that makes up a lot of the agenda on the far right yeah just for the record i'm delineating between the right and the left i have no problem with someone who's on the right zero it's these fringe people yeah they respond to disgust and fear and they're just like oh look at that i heard this one reframe someone said do you realize that all the court cases out of the election like not a single one of them addressed fraud don't you think that's suspicious the supreme court just ignored that like 
they ignored it because there was no fraud. Yeah, there was they, no evidence. They couldn't find anything. Yeah, so there was nothing. Fraud was never. It was all. It was all. The cases were all about like procedural, procedural things. Procedural yeah, like shit. how much time or, or or how many witnesses each side could give for, to watch the vote counting. And do you remember the videos? They would take a video of somebody uh, opening a, a box of ballots and yeah. moving them around and saying, "Look, this is proof." And right. it was like if you watch the whole video and you get an analysis of what was happening, like it was standard procedure. Trump's out there saying, "We're finding where I'm hearing stories about boxes of ballots found in rivers." and dumpsters people in these extreme things well i heard that or i'm hearing that you're hearing what the fuck are you talking about you're hearing fuck you yeah i I heard oh you heard yeah okay what's your source they get they get along by just saying well i I still have questions i need to answer and and, i do my research but yeah but how many people who says i'm going to do my research actually does well they don't i don't think they even know what research is yeah you know, like, I mean, I think COVID is a, is a good example because like the, the way that I'm seeing numbers getting manipulated is extraordinary. Yeah. Because there's so many numbers to look at <laughs> in the way data is interpreted. And like I had one person say, oh, you know, you should just ignore case numbers. Oh, really? We should just ignore that. Yeah, we should ignore that. Oh, okay. Uh, we'll ignore the fact that cases are up by 250% right now all across yeah. America. We'll just ignore that. You know, I understand that Omicron is milder. It looks like it is anyway. Yeah. But we should just ignore the case numbers, truly? Yeah. <laughs> it seems like a lot of people with really fringe views, they'll broadcast them to you, like assuming that you agree with them. Yeah. I was in an elevator just a few weeks ago and I, I had my mask like kind of down. And then this other guy, he gets on the elevator without a mask at all. And he goes, oh, you're like me? And I'm like, oh, wait, what? He thinks I'm like being defiant or something. Uh-huh. But I really, really, I just I stepped out of my office. He's like, yeah, I just, I don't think like, he's like, COVID's not real, you know, like, like oh, saying that to real. me, like, but he said it in a way, assuming I agreed with him. I noticed people with fringe views do that. Um, well, it's camaraderie. So I think yeah. one of the, one of the reasons that people move into this craziness is because they enjoy the camaraderie. So I'm going to get a wax a little psychological here. Yeah. So if you have a deep seated mistrust of authority, let's say you had a mother who was a demagogue, and you just when you see particularly what say women in power, I'm just making this up, that sort of tickles your that gets you moving and you don't even know why you just see it and you have a reaction i think that when people rail against authority if they have a problem with authority it makes them feel good yeah it makes them feel it's like it's like taking a drug it's like a little hit of serotonin i think that's literally what happens when somebody has a problem with that or they're feeling lonely and they find community and those people are incredibly kind like honestly they're real nice and they really like it when you agree with them yeah there's this philosopher edinger who talks about community and that there's two types of communities there's one where picture a circle and picture circles in the circle like a pearl necklace and all those circles represent individuals if one of those individuals deviates from the hive mind they're out of the circle right the circle is broken but when you're in it, you feel real secure, lots of support, lots of right. love, lots of just we're in this together. And it's really important shit because like, let's say there's a real cause, like let's say, you know, we're literally at war. You need to be tight. <laughs> yeah. Right. Now, the other type of circle was more like you have a circle and you have these lines like, I'm going to say like a Corona <laughs> coming out. Yeah. And at the end of the lines are circles. So it's like a, it's a big circle with little spines coming out and circles at the end of the spines. And those indicate individuated people that can go their own way. They're part of a loose community. They're part of a community, but they have their own identities. They're separate from the circle. So separating, so not being in the identity of whatever that little system is, is okay. So that's sort of 
what I'm seeing in both the Trump thing and the COVID thing is a sense of identity. Absolutely. Uh, a sense of mistrust of authorities, mistrust of like the science, mistrust of anyone in power who says this is the way to do it. Well, no, it's not. And it's sort of this childlike thing where I can, I can say, fuck you, you're wrong, I think is gratifying on a really deep inner child level. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Especially like with Trump, I mean, he literally gave people a red hat instead of you, you get to wear this hat and yeah. then you're part of our club and not only that yeah. but we're gonna do rallies non-stop for four years and look at kanye west i mean he sat in trump's office with that hat on and said yeah. when i put this hat on i feel power he said i feel like superman i feel like superman yeah and trump is sitting there nodding you know with his mm, that fucking moron. yeah i'll tell you the story you know i, I was uh so I, I was on capitol hill that day Ooh, story. I, I was working for a, a senator we had a very long substantive meeting with a general, uh, an army general, who is leading a program to create the next generation of ground combat vehicles. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's me, my boss, uh, Senator, Senator Peters, uh, Senator from Michigan, and we're meeting with this general and we spent about an hour talking to him in the in our hideaway. So I don't know if folks know this, but in the Capitol building, every senator has what's called a hideaway. So it's like a little room where you can take meetings. Uh, maybe you're voting on the Senate floor, but then you want to duck out and take a meeting with somebody and not have to go all the way back to your office. So mm -hmm. you take it in the hideaway. So we're doing this meeting, you know, we're talking about the future of ground vehicle combat, which is really interesting to me because I'm a former, you know, armored vehicle crewman in the army. And so we're talking about just autonomous capabilities and all this really cool technology that, that will bring to, to make ground vehicles smarter, you know, very substantive conversation, if, you know, that's what I was on Capitol Hill to do. Mm -hmm. And then, so the meeting ends, you know, my boss, he goes back to the Senate floor and I'm walking this general back to my office and you, you get to the office, everyone's huddled around the TV because Donald Trump is in the Oval Office and Kanye West is sitting at the Resolute desk um, with the MAGA hat on. Kanye is who I'm a, I'm a big fan of Kanye's music. It's amazing. Full disclosure. Guy's a genius. But he's trying to sell Trump on this idea of an iPlane. It's like a <laughs> hydrogen powered airplane. <laughs> I, I just came from a meeting where we we're talking about like the future of ground vehicles and like uh -huh. really like tangible goals we can do to, to make our vehicles smarter for combat. Right. Kanye's in the White House and he's talking about the iPlane, how the president can't be flying on Air Force One anymore because he needs to fly on this hydrogen powered plane. Right. And Kanye's like showing Jared Kushner the, the picture on his phone. And it just felt like, man, I you know, I came to Capitol Hill to do substantive policy, but this is really this is where the city is right now. It's mm -hmm. it's Kanye West in the in the Oval Office, and that's that's where people's attention. And the thing is, he's selling he's selling a narrative. He's selling a story without any grounded in any reality. Have you been following the Elizabeth Holmes trial? Uh, a little bit, yeah. Yeah. So this is the Theranos debacle, the right, one, yeah. um, and she was selling this. She's, she's the black turtleneck icon. Yeah, she looks like she was trying to be like she made her voice really deep. Right. And for those of you who don't know, she created out of nothing a nine billion dollar company at the age of like twenty set on the idea of doing blood tests with just a pinprick of blood and supposed to just like a regular butterfly draw from your arm. She bamboozled all these people. This kind of harkens back to your early thing about what's what's credible information, what's real information. Mm -hmm. You can listen to all these phone calls and she'll say stuff that's true. She'll talk about blood tests in a really credible sounding way and what this does and what that does. And then she'll deviate ever so slightly and start talking about you know how we're, uh, we're going to use these on medevac helicopters so that we can do blood tests during you know in a war zone and then suddenly by the next conversation will be yeah we've actually tested them on medevac helicopters and we have yeah. the data and it's usually based on some study that was done by a third or fourth party right 
how it might work yeah. if it was on a medevac helicopter and what that would be. And that becomes the study that she's basing her thing on. The other thing she does, which is something, this is a tactic we use in PR, is, is she gets validators. She gets influencers. Yeah. She, she had a bunch of big name. I think she had a former secretary of state. And, and they'll back her story up. And I feel like this is the thing that happens in, in disinformation movements. You have credible people who have been drawn in and then they repeat information. Yeah. But the thing about the, the trials is that they really get down to the source. Like, okay, what was the data actually saying? How many blood tests did you actually do? How many machines? Machines, how many Edisons at the machine they made? Did you actually have that actually worked? The answer was zero. Like they would have reporters show up and do a blood test and they take a finger prick and then put it in the machine. And then the reporter would leave the room and they would take the blood test out of the machine, put it in a larger machine because the, the machine fucking wasn't working. Yeah. It could have it could have been a shoebox. Yeah. It could have been a shoe. It could have been anything. Yeah. It's all smoke and mirrors. And then they would fire anybody who disagreed with them. And that's come back to the circle thing. Well, you're not, you're not part of the crew. You don't believe our thing. So anyway, just as far as like rigorous reporting is concerned, when you, when it's good reporting, when it's a good, when it's a real story, they really look at this, the numbers and and they line, they line it all up and they kind of let you decide like what you think instead right. of telling you what to think. And this is what so-and-so said. And this is where this person is from. And this is why they said that. And this right. is where I heard this. There's a sense of rigor. There's yeah. a sense of like, it's kind of hard work to read those articles because they're so detailed. They're really well-sourced. And a lot of these newspapers that are reputable, they base their, their reputation on these things. And I had you know one guy say to me, do you realize that the New Yorker or the Times and all these papers had 16 retractions and that Fox had none? And I said, well, that's called rigorous reporting because when they see they, they fuck something up, they say, hey, we fucked up. Exactly. Guess what? That's Fox doesn't do that because they're assholes. <laughs> yeah, that's, <laughs> that's something I, you know, I should have mentioned earlier. When you know what I'm saying? When it's you, like the reframe is incredible. Yeah, yeah. No, I know. Like, you, I mean, you brought up ways to spot credible news outlet. I should add, you know, CNN does get it wrong, but they admit it. You're never going to see one of these conspiracy sites or one of these like far ever, ever. news outlets. They're not going to admit that they were wrong. Yeah. They'll just breeze past it. So when a news outlet admits they're wrong, it's not a sign that they're fucked up. It's, yeah. it's a sign that they're credible. And there's also the thing like Holmes had an agenda. She was trying to make money and she was also, it was also for her ego. And a lot of folks project that there's this massive agenda that big pharma is trying to make money, that everyone's trying to do this thing. And it is true that, that there is a money agenda. But I heard a whole podcast on like how the government had to basically bribe big pharma to make the vaccines because they're like, no, there's no profit in that. We don't want to do that. And government's like, please, we really need this. Here's a billion dollars, which I think is excessive, but yeah. which you could argue was a money motivator. But the idea that big pharma was like, ooh, we have a, we have a, we can make a vaccine. And like, oh, oh, sure. Big pharma got together like, you know what? let's make a let's let's promote a disease that's so virulent that the government will bribe us to make a vaccine i'm sure they thought of that shit like you know what i'm saying well you've got these, these are the people that are saying that bill gates is just trying to get rich this guy is he's already rich <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah, he's fucking like, rich i don't think he needs this so <laughs> i guess what i'm saying it. is like there's these little i was playing with this new idea of like nodes of narrative like where people get information and they stick little nodes of like story in the actual information like when kanye west comes in and says hey there's this hovercraft the node is like it is conceivable that there could be such a machine, I suppose. But the narrative is, is is that he's talking about something that doesn't actually physically exist and that we probably don't have the technology to make, which is what Elizabeth Holmes was doing. So then yeah. there's, and there was like little bubbles of story. Does that make sense? 
when people kind of gloss over things, where they'll, they'll pick up a little thread of information, like there's this video of someone getting an injection. I think it was a drive-through vaccination site. What happens is they, they go up and they pull the thing out and there's no needle in the syringe. And they're like, ah, proof, proof that it's all fake. So the node is, we're not going to show what the context was. And we're going to create a narrative now that you've seen this video. We're going to create this little bubble of story mm -hmm. around this thing where, in fact, it's a device that when you do that, the needle retracts into the device. There's a whole reason for it, you know, right. that they, of course, filled in with story. Yeah. But what I'm trying to, I'm trying to paint a picture of how information is riddled with people's stories. It's almost like, think of it like a tapestry of real information and people's insanity and their story and their narrative is woven into it mm -hmm. and they're woven together. It's really weird. Just to watch people vacillate between real information and their own narrative without knowing it is amazing. Yeah. I don't I remember when COVID first hit and Trump was like, you know, there's just 14 people have it. You know, one is very sick. He's very sick, but you know, it's this is this is we're gonna get through this. And and it's like, bro, like you don't know that. You so it's true that there's 14 people in America that are sick yeah. and have it. Well, yeah, I mean, if he's infamously said we're, we're all going to be back in our church pews by easter you know in 2020 and of course yeah. that didn't happen we, we just breezed past a lot of just minimizing what was going on so. anyway i've ranted enough about all that yeah. uh, i'm kind of curious to hear about some of your military experience yeah so i joined the, the army when i was 17 I've, I've sort of always had a, a fascination with the military when i was a kid even though i came from hippie marin county which is uh, a terrible place <laughs> I want Can, everyone to know that. Is it possible to do your podcast without saying something negative about Marin County? No, it is not. <laughs> it is necessary. People must know. <laughs> Listen, when the revolution comes, gonna be, I'm going to turn it into a national park. No one's going to be allowed to live there. It's yeah. going to be like the Grand Canyon. You're going to have to apply. Yeah. You know, there's going to be one cafe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be a gift shop. It'd be one cafe. It's going to be in San, downtown San Anselmo. And maybe a bagel shop too. Yeah. yeah okay. You, bagel you shop. Can't leave people hungry. Yeah. I can't. So there'll be a few visitors that can roll through. Yeah. Hike up Mount Tam. It's beautiful. Yeah. It, it is gorgeous. beautiful. I, I mean, I was, it's in my DNA, the, the fresh air, the, the redwood trees. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know what I hate about Marin? Tell me. Speaking of insanity, Marin, this is what I hate about you. You breed an air of liberal... And I'm not thinking it's liberals per se, I kind of do, but I kind of don't. Liberal, open-minded, Buddhist, kind of free, blah, blah, blah. But y'all are capitalists. Y'all yeah. are wealthy. You're all are greedy. Y'all not in my backyard. I mean, it lacks a diversity uh, that I think just hinders people's like perception. I think if you grow up there in this super like hyper majority white community, you don't get the, the exposure that you need. And there's uh, nothing wrong with growing up in white communities. No. I'm just saying that don't tell me that you are all about inclusion. Right. And don't tell well, me that you're all about it, diversity when you are clearly not. Well, that's by design too, right? Like yeah. if, if you look at deeds of, of homes in Marin County, a lot of the homes like in Sleepy Hollow and San Anselmo, they say you cannot sell this property to a black family. What? That's that's in deeds, and of course today no. it's no longer enforceable. But yes, that was that uh, was in there. That was in people's. Wow. It's still in people's deeds. Now, like they that, don't they don't know it. Now but, this is a, this is a good example of how I could take that bit of information and talk about how deeply racist Marin County right. is. Oh, you could just run with you could conspiracy. run with that one and create all these stories around it. But that's yeah. not. I mean, there's those kinds of things and documents all over the country because we come from a lot of racist background. Yeah. But that's gone now and we're past that. And I don't think Marin County is a deeply racist county. No. But in the past, it sounds like it sure freaking was. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, by design, it, it was it was meant to be a, a white community. 
So, you know, I grew up, I grew up in Fairfax. I actually, my, my earliest political moment I can remember, I was in middle school and a group of us staged a walkout from class to oh. protest the Iraq war. A bunch of 12 year olds said, enough is enough. Get us out of Iraq. And we walked out of our classroom. So it's ironic. I, you know, I go on and join the army and end up serving in Afghanistan for a year. But I, I kind of look at my time in the military in a, in a few different phases. And I went through basic training. George Bush was still president when I joined. Actually, I remember I was, I was in boot camp on election night in 2008. Mm-hmm. You know, so we're all sleeping in the middle of the night. We don't have any phones or technology because we're privates in basic training. And a drill sergeant wakes us up and he brings us all onto the line, this painted line in our hallway where we mm-hmm. line up. And he just goes off screaming at us because McCain had lost. And he basically tells us that we're all going to be worthless, nothing, because we're not going to see the glory of combat. Oh, no. He's like, Obama's president. We're going to get out of all these wars. So you privates, you aren't going to be shit. You're not going to serve in war. And because of that, you're going to get no respect in this army and you're nothing. You know, that's that's really inappropriate for, you know, the army is supposed to be apolitical. I think I would joined at a time, sort of the end of when the army was really doing a lot of politically incorrect and, and just like, I, I think the way our, our, our training was executed, there was just a lot of moments that I think a kid going through basic today wouldn't experience. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll give an example. There was one night uh, in basic training. Everyone in basic has a nickname. Our neighboring company had two guys named Evans. One guy was dumb Evans. The other guy was fat Evans. So like, <laughs> these are very primitive names. So this, there's this guy in my company named Cates. His last name is C-A-T-E-S. And the drill sergeant, his nickname is Private Girl's Name. What? His name, they called him Private Girl's Name. Like, rather than Private Kate's, they'd be like, hey, Private Girl's Name. <laughs> like, these are very, these are fucking caveman nicknames. Wow. So Private Girl's Name sneaks out in the middle of the night, and he, he goes to a soda a vending machine, which you can't do. You can't have soda when you're in basic. And he comes back with this Coke, and the drill sergeants catch him. And everyone else, we're all asleep. And what they do is they proceed to do what's called collective punishment. They bring all of us out, the entire company, you know, 125 of us or whatever. They bring us outside into the grass and they make Kate stand in the doorway of the barracks and watch all of us get smoked. So we're all doing push-ups, we're all, you know, flutter kicks, mm-hmm. just getting destroyed in the right. mud. And Kate just has to stand there and watch us. And drink then the at the end, what's that? And drink the Coke. <laughs> I think he might've finished the Coke by then. Then at the end, they say you've got 30 seconds for everyone to get back inside the barracks and they point at private girl's name and they say, you can't move. So he's standing in the doorway uh-huh. and 125 pissed off 17, 18, 19 year olds need to get in the building in 30 seconds. Oh dear. He was trampled. The first guys Jesus. elbowed him in the face and he would have to get up, stand back up. Uh-huh. I mean, guys were just like kneeing him going by. Jesus Christ. He would get up, he'd get thrown on the ground again. People would just be stepping on him. I don't think that happens now in basic training. Right. I, I think that was like, I caught the tail end of like when drill sergeants were really rough with, with the privates. And that was like one of a couple times when when they had basically, a, you know, privates beating up other privates and they were cool with it. There was another time a drill sergeant put his boot on a kid's face while he was low crawling. So, you know, I, I look back at that as like a, a crazy experience for a 17 year old. But then I went on and was based in Germany. So I, you know, in Germany, did a lot of training during the week and on the weekend, we did a lot of partying. Um, I was an armor crewman. So I, I grew up driving tanks and strikers. I, I learned how to drive a tank before I knew how to drive a car. Strikers are an eight wheeled, big, giant green vehicle. So for a couple of years, you know, I was in Germany training and then 
all of that to go towards a, a deployment to Afghanistan in 2010. That was when the surge started. So we added another 40,000 troops to the country, I think for a total of 100,000 during the 2010-2011 timeframe. And we deployed to a, an area called uh, the Kandahar province, uh, Maiwan district of the mm -hmm. Kandahar province. Um, so it's this area in Southeast Afghanistan, kind of near the Pakistani border. Mm -hmm. um, so you get a lot of Taliban traffic going across mm -hmm. the border, mm -hmm. bringing people, bringing uh, you know, arms across the border. And that area has one highway called Highway 1. It's, it's, it has one paved highway in, in, the, whole, in the whole region mm -hmm. called Highway 1. So we spent a lot of time bringing the Strikers Island Patrol on, on Highway 1 and uh and also just patrolling through the the villages so the thing about what i think really appeals to young kids about serving in the military is mm -hmm. sort of brotherhood that you get everyone has a purpose mm -hmm. in the platoon I, I think that goes back to our dna as as human beings right. as you know our ancestors would want you know fifty thousand, hundred thousand years ago you want a tribe and not only that, but you also want a utility within the tribe. You want to be fully utilized. Mm. And then I think you really feel like you have a place in the world and you really feel of value. Right. Um, so I think that same appeal, that same primitive want that our ancestors would have had, you know, we have as, as young soldiers in the military. And do you think that also reflects people's desire to be part of political movements and have absolutely yeah, yeah. i think it's all connected yeah because you don't get that i, I could walk outside your house right now mm -hmm. and walk down the street and i may step in dog shit but i'm not going to get a fucking spear in my head i'm not going to worry about my my safety and i don't need to f wonder where my next meal is going to come from so because of that we, we need to find other outlets to to be part of a tribe and right you know because we come from tribal warfare we, we come from battling other tribes mm -hmm. so we need to find another outlet to get that same sense of being on a team mm -hmm. and being fully utilized i see sebastian junger he wrote a book called tribe that articulates this way better than i could right um but i would highly recommend uh, checking that out okay but that can also be that can be taken advantage of a story comes to mind of a team leader i had he showed up in germany um, I guess I'll call him Sergeant H. I won't say his last name. But Sergeant H shows up as a total Boy Scout, just wanting wanting the brotherhood, wanting to be on the team. He, he was a former Miami police officer, um, so really gung-ho guy, uh, and was just really excited to be there. Mm -hmm. You could just tell he was just beaming with like, I'm part of this platoon. This is my team. I trust everyone. So then we're getting ready to deploy, and this is in the spring of 2010. And we've got this big training event that's going to be you know, several weeks of being out in the field in, in Germany training for this deployment. Uh, Sergeant H's wife, she's going to school uh, full-time as a student in Germany, but she can't drive because she's not licensed to drive there yet. So he trusts another guy, uh, Sergeant G. While we're training, uh, Sergeant G's driving Sergeant H's wife to school every day. And then we're at this, the training event and my buddy Kane and I were sitting on a guard shift in the middle of the night. It's probably like 3 or 4 a.m. And we're just sitting, we're in a striker, uh, just like shooting the shit, keeping watch. And out of thin air, because at this time, Sergeant H wasn't showing up to training. Mm -hmm. um, he had left and, you know, we're all staying out in camp. So, you know, who's there and who's not. And so Kane turns to me and he goes, out of thin air, he just goes, you know, Sergeant H isn't here anymore. I'm like, yeah, I know. And he's like, yeah, but Sergeant G isn't here either. And I'm like, yeah, I know. And he's like, but Sergeant G was driving Sergeant H's wife to school. And I'm like, yeah, I know. Mm -hmm. And he's like, well, what if Sergeant G was fucking Sergeant H's wife? Okay. And I'm like, how, we, how, how would we know that? What do you mean? And, he, and he's like, well, it just makes sense because Sergeant H isn't here anymore and Sergeant G isn't here. And 
uh kane was a simple guy he's like an old boy from oklahoma mm-hmm. very simple guy he had to like kind of lost his mind and went awol eventually creating a narrative out of thin air <laughs> totally pulled it out of thin air yeah and he was fucking right he was right he was right oh my god <laughs> wow so okay, never mind so dan corrected like two days later because you know the leadership was very like quiet about it they were very hush hush at first they weren't telling us where science age was and then they told us and not only that he lost his mind um sergeant sergeant h did he had a complete mental breakdown he was coming to me going chasen that's my last name he goes chasen I need you to uh, take a knife and go to Sergeant G's house and slash his, his car tires. Oh, Jesus. And I'm like, whoa, like, I, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. That's a level but, of crazy. I don't know. Yeah. Really, I was yeah. like, I'm, you know, I'm sorry about what happened, but like, I really don't want to be involved like that at yeah. all. He really lost it. Remember, this was like the gung ho Boy Scout, like, very straight edge, smart, really? just like. What happened to him, do you suppose? Eventually, yeah, he, he's making several demands of me like that, like uh-huh. asking me to, to mess with his car, mess with his house, jump him, do something. And I keep turning him down, like, hey, man, I really don't want to be involved. And eventually, my leadership tells me I need to take Sergeant H to an inpatient mental health facility because he's losing his mind, which looking back, I think it was kind of unprofessional, right? Because I, I was the subordinate. I was like a, a baby private at the time. Yeah. And he was my sergeant. And now I have to drive him to the mental health facility. I mean, someone's got to do it. Yeah. So I take him there and leave him there. Uh, and I think he was there for a week or two. And then eventually he gets chaptered out of the army. So he doesn't uh-huh. come with us on deployment. Right. So I didn't see him. And I, and I should I should also say that the whole drive there, because he was a Miami cop, he is telling me details of the cheating down to the minute. He's going at approximately 4.54 p.m., Sergeant G picks up my wife and they pull over to the side of the road and she gives him oral sex. At approximately 7 p.m., she told me she was going to the grocery store, but instead she went to Sergeant G's house and they had sex. At approximately 1 p.m., they met again, they had sex. I mean, it was like, all because he looked through her phone and found all these times mm-hmm. and he's giving me all of this detail about his wife cheating like a police report. Wow. He, he's he's saying it all back to me like like he's hasn't slept and he's just been running these lies and these times that she went to go meet him through his head and there's no emotion in it because it's just oh yeah he's just like completely computer is robotic yeah the only way he can because the feeling is too overwhelming so the thing he can express is his thoughts and that also going through it gives him some maybe some control over the situation maybe a sense of like i am a position of authority yeah because i've been so emasculated or yeah you know from this thing i don't know that's that i don't even know what to think of that so then we deploy and Sergeant H doesn't come with us. And this might have been like the late summer of, of 2010. I'm at what's called a strong point, which is like a fortified area. It's not a base. You know, you can, you can only fit. Basically, a platoon could stay there. You've got some tents. You can park your vehicles there. Mm-hmm. It's got these big HESCO baskets, for, which are like these giant baskets that are filled with sand mm-hmm. so that it's fortified. And I'm on a guard shift again. Uh-huh. Uh, but this time, I'm actually in the combat zone. I'm not, you know... It's not, I'm not back in Germany at a tra- training. You know, I'm at a real guard shift, keeping watch, and I see a platoon of vehicles coming to our to our strong point. I noticed that they weren't from our company because you can tell because of the markings on them. It, it, it says they're from mm-hmm. H company, and my company is G company, which is funny, right? Because the story is about Sergeant G and Sergeant H, but that's actually the name of our companies too. So I'm, I'm from Ghost Company, and he was mm-hmm. from Hawk Company. Mm-hmm. 
so these these hot company vehicles come into our strong point it's sergeant g he's on this patrol and he comes up to my guard shack and he's like chasing and i'm like oh shit what's up man and as i see him what's flashing through my head is sergeant h telling me slash his tires beat him up uh you know jump him do anything so i, I talked to him not at all about sergeant h or the cheating like i didn't talk about that at all we we're just mm-hmm. kind of shooting the shit but then he gets back into his vehicle and his platoon leaves you know they were just like checking in at a strong point they leave and then maybe like 200 yards out his i'm watching his vehicle go and it fucking explodes Uh, what which is crazy like anyone who's seen an explosion in afghanistan will tell you that you see it first Uh right because there's so much dust we call it moon dust there's so much sand and dust it balloons into the sky like a big mushroom you see that flash and then you fucking hear it this big Boom, that just rocks you. Oh my God. So I'm watching his vehicle creep along the trail. That fucking mushroom fires up into the air and then wham, I just feel the force. Um, he hit an IED. Uh, Sergeant G survived. He did. He survived, but he was very injured. Uh, got taken back to Germany and was done with Afghanistan. I don't even know what to say to that. Yeah, I'm glad he was okay. Um, I don't think anyone ever told Sergeant H because we were we lost touch with him, but it was just crazy that this guy was demanding that we do anything to harm this person and then just right before my eyes i watch him suffer just catastrophic injury that is which of uh, course i would never celebrate or uh, or, unbelievable yeah i'm gonna say something weird yeah so i was taking an uber ride home once and there was this woman very religious woman giving me a ride back and i was talking about you know getting the vaccine she's oh i'm sorry to hear that i was like oh that's interesting and she started talking about, I was, I was curious about what her perspective was. And she had like three grown kids and they all had tons of grandkids. And she was talking about how great God was. And she called him, you know, the most high, you know, which is sort of super, I guess, Southern deep kind of Baptist sort of way of talking about God. And then she started talking about um, the vaccine being modern day witchcraft. Whoa. And I thought that was brilliant. Why? <laughs> I'm not sure because the reframe worked. It was like, huh, like it's a shot that goes in and does some pretty miraculous stuff or insidious stuff, depending on your opinion, which is you're all entitled to. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like magic. And her frame, it was like, I don't know how to put this, like her frame was cohesive. It, it was like, I, I see this as a system. This is the system. It's evil. Yeah. And the idea of witchcraft is so interesting because people, you know, there's stories of like, you know, a medicine man will curse somebody and then he'll sneak out and like bonk the person on the head and like put red ants inside, like literally, like like pull their intestines out and put red ants inside them and the person will die. And that's how, and, and then they'll say, oh, well, the witchcraft, that was the spell that did it when really, but yeah. in other words, there's the system of that operates of evil doings within these communities. Right or magic that happens in these communities. And in a way, the va- I'm thinking, of, I'm trying to think of things archetypally, like the vaccine occupies an archetypal place in the American psyche. Mm-hmm. And for one side, it's just a tool. And for the other side, it's like witchcraft. It's like, what is this thing you're putting into my body that yeah. I don't really understand? Yeah. And that it's coming for me. And then it's got these properties. And what does it do? And why are you being so secretive about it, which they're not? Uh, what, you know, what, because people, people don't understand it. So they're trying to, you know, it's like it's it was like the way she was talking about it was like it was really clear like her relationship to the vaccine became crystal clear with just a few words it's modern day witchcraft like oh like, yeah oh i get it yeah thank you 
that makes so much sense. I wanted to kiss her. <laughs> and I guess I bring that up because I'm thinking about, it's almost like this guy cursed the dude. Yeah. And yeah. like that there's a God or a devil. And it's like, like that's clearly not what happened. Right. But, but that would be an easy way to it, summarize what happened. Yeah, your relationship to it would be. It would. I, I'm. I wish I were smarter than I am because I would <laughs> use better words here. But yeah, there's a certain. There's something really weird happening there. Yeah. That is just. It, it's that is. They would call that in in Jungian theory uh, synchronicity when you have two a causal events, non-related events that clearly are related right. but have no relationship. That's a synchronous event. Yeah. And it's kind of witchy. Yeah. Right. I mean, I think that's what conspiracy theories are, right? It's like the ability to draw this shortcut and connect these dots that are not connected. These dots are a world apart. They are. They are a world apart. You're drawing a fucking line between them, and it's because that makes you comfortable and and it makes you easy to understand. And also, it it appeals to us psychologically when something has got some magic in it. Absolutely. Now, conversely, you're not going to like this, but I don't care. (laughs) Synchronicity is a thing. The original story comes from uh, Carl Jung was in Zurich uh, talking to a patient about a, a dream the patient had in the dream, I believe it was of a Egyptian scarab beetle. I think I've told this story before in other mm. podcasts. As they're talking about the dream, an Egyptian scarab beetle appears on the outside the window. They're in Zurich. Mm. They're, those things are from fucking Egypt. Yeah. What are the chances? Well, did we get a credible source that, that proved that the scarab I mean, I don't think Jung made it up. I mean, I guess he could have been lying. Yeah. I mean, he was kind of a madman. So sure, he could have been. He could have made that shit up. It's, it's possible. Probably bullshit. It, it's not. <laughs> I, I don't think. I don't think Jung would just make shit up. He was. I mean, if you know Young stuff, he was pretty rigorous about. He was like honest to a fault. Like he was like seeing another woman, and he's like, I can't live my life dishonestly. So he like told his wife, Look, we're gonna have two wives now because I just can't live my. He was. He's not the kind of guy who would just make something up. Yeah. Now no, that could be bullshit. I can't prove that. And here I am spinning my own narrative. Because I believe Jung is a credible source, and I believe that he was having a conversation about an Egyptian scarab beetle in Zurich with his patient, and I believe that he saw one appear on the window outside of the thing, and that he knew yeah. enough about uh, beetles to know what he was seeing, because he was really into that sort of thing. He was into archetypes, and he was into like what exactly do things look like, and he he was he was rigorous about stuff, and he was a you know, right. or maybe it's all bullshit, and I'm just like snowed, and I'm believing this source that's all crap, and there is no there is no single synchronicity and there is no a causal related events and and it's all random yeah. and there is no meaning and rick and morty are correct <laughs> rick and morty are correct <laughs> no they're not it can't be uh, don't say it Dan. unless unless a scarab beetle shows up on the window of yours san francisco you know what right something's now. gonna show up yeah. and you're gonna see Open that i'm right and that <laughs> you're you're gonna know it dan <laughs> yeah you're gonna know that so you know that story would be it, it would seem more mystical if uh that was the first you know roadside bomb that our unit hit or something or yeah we never saw ieds in that area right but you're telling it as a tale and right. what's interesting is that as you tell it as a tale it has its own energy and its own power right but when you look in context you're in a fucking war zone the chances of him hitting an ied are not terrible they're fucking high you know are, and, are, are, there is a lot of and there's a lot of there's a lot of mental illness in the military a lot of people are doing a lot of fucked up things they're yeah. having psychotic breaks they're young right and yeah. that people are in that age group in the 20s uh, they tend to have psychotic breaks at that age so that's you know not uncommon and infidelity is not uncommon so you have psychotic break infidelity and an yeah. ied those, those are all in one story pretty common ingredients pretty in common the, uh, ingredients in the shelf military, in the military in that yeah. Area. yeah but still as a story it sounds like witchcraft yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah it's cool 
Yeah. And, and it carries weight and it would go forward and people would tell it and say, see, this is proof that blah, 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 blah. Right. And maybe be right. I don't yeah. know. Connect cool. those dots. Or non-dots. Yeah, or non-existent dots. Um, do you have more stories from the military you want to share? No, let's keep going, man. Okay. You know, it's, it's frustrating. Um, IEDs are very common in the area that we were in in Afghanistan, in the Kandahar province. I think most vehicles in my company hit an IED. The one that my vehicle hit was actually, we, we broke it. It was- uh, You broke an IED? Yeah, it wasn't put together. I don't know why that's funny. Yeah, like they- <laughs> They use these yellow water jugs and they fill them with HME, homemade explosives. Okay. And they'll get like a teenager hopped up on heroin. Okay. And so one day the kid will go out and like dig the hole. And then the next day he'll like drive by on the motorcycle and drop the HME in. And then the next day he'll he'll connect a, a detonator. So it, they don't just like sit there because they know we're watching. They'll do it very quickly and incrementally. And, uh-huh. and we think that the bomb just wasn't finished being set up. Okay. So we ran it over and then the vehicle behind us was like, hey, wait, stop. You guys just hit an ID. And we're like, what the fuck are you guys talking about? And they're like, look, and I have a picture of it. It's just, there's a yellow jug that's just full of this gray powder. That's and terrifying. It's broken in half. Um, yeah. And then you have, you know, that happens and then you just, you have to sit and wait for engineers to come and, and then mm-hmm. they attach some C4 to it and, and detonate it. But my company, we had five of our guys who didn't come home and four of those five were from IEDs um, and a bunch of guys getting injured by the way, from IEDs. And then that fifth guy, unfortunately, took his own life uh, while we were in country. And with him, his platoon, he's in second platoon, I was in fourth platoon. So second platoon goes out on a patrol through this village. They spend a whole afternoon in in the village. You know, a lot of times when you you go into a village, you bring the interpreters with you, you're talking to the tribal leaders, you're talking to elders, Mm -hmm. um, you ask questions like, uh, you know, are the Taliban giving you guys trouble? Are you... Have you had any problems here uh, lately with the Taliban? And they either answer or maybe they lie to you. And then you leave. So they did that. They left. Um, they, or they started to leave. And it's when they had their backs turned and were leaving that they started getting shot at. On that patrol specifically is what we call sometimes a celebrity patrol. So they had a colonel with them who was sort of shadowing them. And so when they got shot at, this young guy, this private in their platoon, he dropped his bag, which was full of expensive equipment, a bunch of communications equipment. Um, he dropped it so he could run and get cover. And then when the shooting was done, he went back to get his bag and it was gone. And so now they're missing this bag full of sensitive equipment. They think maybe one of the neighborhood kids like grabbed it or something and ran with it. But the platoon's got to stay. So now they've got to stay in this area where they just got shot at and comb through the neighborhood for this fucking bag. Mm-hmm. So everyone's like giving him shit. Like, man, we wouldn't fucking be here if it wasn't for you. Mm-hmm. Like, now we're fucking stuck here just like really fucking ragging on him. Mm-hmm. And that just goes on long enough. And he, he walks into a little mud hut and just puts his rifle in his mouth and, and Jesus. Yeah. It takes his own life on that day. Right there. Right. Right on that patrol. Holy shit. Yeah. I don't know what to say to that. Yeah. It's really unusual. It's really sad. And of course, you know, he's, he's he couldn't have been older than 21. He already had two kids. The shame maybe. Yeah. Oh yeah. He was just completely getting shit on by everyone. Uh, yeah. I think, uh, it reminds me of um you've seen full metal jacket yeah you know he makes they make him eat the donut in front of the whole yeah. platoon and then yeah. they hit him with the soap and then yeah. he goes nuts and shoots himself in the head you know, right like that that when the collective rejects you it's just incredibly painful that's right you know that's right yeah i mean it just goes back to that instinct we have to, to wanting to, to fit with the tribe and, and i would imagine that when someone is part of a political or an ideological group on any side of the spectrum and you are deciding to leave that group it must be really painful and really difficult and i think groups tend to retain their members whatever the group is 
yeah. that little circle you know again like they're gonna stay in that thing because leaving it is death yeah i mean you see that all the time with like different cults and religions and how did they platoon react to his death um it was really fucking sad um i mean we did a service is there a sense of guilt around like why would we mistreat that guy or was it i don't know i don't i i think everyone just understood he was having a horrible day and just two kids let it get to him deeply maybe there are other things in his personal life that i don't know about that Uh contributed to that but whatever was going through his head i mean he felt like that he couldn't get through that day that's a hell of a story dan yeah it's really awful um and yeah, I mean, with that exception, the other four killed in action while we were there for my company were all IEDs. So mm-hmm. how frustrating is that to, to lose your life mm-hmm. and you don't even get to look the enemy in the eye? I mean, you don't even get to see the person yeah. who took your life. These IEDs are planted sometimes days before we hit them and then the road explodes and the road you're explodes. done. It yeah. sounds like the title of a book. Yeah. The road explodes. Yeah, just very common in the area we were in. Can I ask a question? Yeah. What about the idea, and I'm not taking political sides here, I really am not, Yeah. but that we're the terrorists and that we're the enemy? Because you, you refer to them as the enemy, which is fine. Yeah. Because technically they were. But aren't we the enemy? Aren't we invading their territory? Like I'm talking about perspective. Like how? What is their perspective of us there as, as quote unquote occupiers or invaders? Or is that, that is that their perspective? Or are we there as saviors? Or is it divided? Well, I don't think that's the average Afghan's perspective. I think the average Afghan appreciated our presence there okay. because they know what it's like to be under the Taliban rule. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the Taliban was running the country in the late 90s and early 2000s up until we invaded. Mm-hmm. And the purpose of that was because 3,000 Americans were killed on 9-11 due to an attack from Al-Qaeda that was orchestrated by Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan where they found safe harbor because of the Taliban government. Okay. The Taliban government does not recognize women's rights. So if you were to ask an average Afghan woman if she preferred the U.S. presence and the U.S.-supported Afghan government mm-hmm. compared to the Taliban, they're, they're going to tell you you know, our, our presence 10 out of 10 times. Mm-hmm. Girls were going back to school when we were there. Um, that's not happening now. So I think that the... Taliban would call us the invaders, the occupiers, mm-hmm. but not the average Afghan. Okay. I'm just curious. Let me point out a, just one Afghan that, that we came across who, mm-hmm. who kind of stuck with me. There was a day when we got orders to do a mission in a village that had not been patrolled in years. Like they were like, no one's patrolled this village since like the British special forces went through like five years ago or something. And, and they got a bunch of contacts. So they were like, you guys go through this village. Like you're going to get wet. What does um, that, what does that mean? <laughs> get wet you're gonna get shot at you're gonna get shot at yeah it's an interesting metaphor (laughs) it's Uh, gonna rain bullets yes yeah and we were stoked i mean we were pumped yay bullets bullets are awesome i can't wait to die let's go let's do it and we did what's called an air insert so you pile the whole platoon onto a chinook and then the chinook brings you in chinook is a helicopter it's a big beast helicopter and compared to an air assault right air assault you you fast rope down a down a line Mm -hmm. uh, usually from like a black hawk or something and it plays cool music while you do it yeah air inserts like we're gonna park the car and then everyone's gonna get out safely so they actually land the chinooks we all step off and and this is before the sun's has risen that day and then when the sun comes up we start our patrol you know we're doing key leader engagements talking to uh, you know the tribal elders and, and whatnot um and we're, we're breaking bread with the afghan soldiers and we're drinking chai tea and before you know it we get through a whole day of that 
not a single shot's fired. No, no rain. No, no nobody, get wet. nobody got wet. No one got wet. Ugh. Uh, so too bad. And then, uh, but, but we met a guy that day, you know, we're, we're talking to these guys through, through an interpreter, mm-hmm. you know, we ask our usual questions of him um, if he's had any issues and he tells us, I've got my family, I've got my, uh, my land and my, my home and my animals. And he says, I'm the happiest man in the world. Wow. This is a guy who lives in a mud hut. Mm-hmm. Um, in the middle of the desert. In, in the middle, middle of the desert. In a war zone. He's not posting selfies. Mm-hmm. He's not paying car insurance. He's not part of some cult. He's, he's, not, yeah, he's, he's not espousing a crazy political He's not foaming at the mouth over some something he saw in his Facebook group. Yeah. He's just um, living his life. He's living his life. His best life. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, he's the happiest man in the world. So I, I can now walk around and say, I met the happiest man in the world. Um, <laughs> and if anyone... Uh, you know, wants to copy his lifestyle. It, it's uh, pretty simple to adopt. That's I'm gonna. Um, maybe I'll adopt that. Yeah, you should. I mean, you're almost there. You just need to get a couple goats. You know, maybe. Maybe that's what I can do to Marin County. Just, <laughs> just unleash a bunch of goats. Just no mud huts. <laughs> you can't live in Marin County unless you live in a mud hut. <laughs> <laughs> they would still go for two million dollars. <laughs> <laughs> that's so true. Yeah. <laughs> All right, that's a good story, man. Yeah. Thanks. All right. What else do you have to say? This is a mental health podcast, so I should talk about challenges I found both on Capitol Hill and in the military with, from that perspective. Well, you should ask me, what's the transition like leaving Afghanistan? So, Dan, <laughs> <laughs> what was the transition like leaving Afghanistan? <laughs> uh, that's an enormous transition that every service member takes on. I mentioned my buddy Kane earlier, the old boy from Oklahoma. Me and Kane, we get back to Germany in the spring of 2011, and we go to the grocery store for the first time after a year in Afghanistan. And we've got a grocery basket full of items. And me and Kane just are standing next to each other, and he looks at me, and he goes, man, do you think everyone in here is staring at us? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, dude. Were you in your fatigues? No. No. We were just in the, But we were on an army base anyway. Uh-huh. And we both were thinking the same exact thing that everyone there was staring at us wow nobody was fucking staring at us but we had so much anxiety Mm -hmm. just being in like this grocery store with the stupid like elevator music playing in the background when like just a few weeks ago we were you know hanging out the hats of a vehicle mobbing through a village with our rifles in the air and so to just be plucked out of that and then you're in a grocery store we couldn't fucking handle it Mm -hmm. and we just walked out we left our basket full of stuff and didn't even buy anything wow. and we just left because we were just like so uncomfortable mm. but eventually you know you kind of that wears off and um not for everybody though not for everyone yeah that's true it's like reminiscent of ptsd a little bit yeah yeah for me i would characterize it as anxiety but yes a lot of people do struggle with ptsd and, and the adjustment is just too much i remember to bear. when i was on the i was on the muni bus when i was a kid and there was this old guy old black guy this was like 1980 something yeah um and he was he must have been a vietnam veteran he was huddled in a seat talking about i didn't think i didn't hear the word Viet Cong or anything like that but he was like looking it's like he was looking around the trees and he kept Mm. putting his hand in his jacket like he was going to grab a gun Mm. and i remember the bus driver looked to him and said he said something about they're gonna gonna try they're gonna they're they're coming they're gonna try shoot me bus driver says you just settle down no one's trying to shoot you and she like was she was She's ama- good like, with him. Yeah, Muni bus drivers. They're the mothers and fathers of San Francisco. Oh, yeah. They're the most amazing people. My dream, I've said this before, 
is to hand hundred dollar bills out on Christmas to all the minibus drivers. Just, just <laughs> yeah, I awesome. just love them. They're just so they're all powerful. Yeah. Like you know, like when you ever play a video game where there's certain characters that if you fight them, you die instantly. Yeah. <laughs> like, and it's not they don't they don't have no beef with you, but if you fight these characters, you're dead. Yeah. That's the minibus driver of San Francisco. Oh, yeah, the minibus driver will body slam you off the fucking bus. They and the voice, the power. Yeah, other- they just turn around and they can talk to any like any person who's out of line and say, you know, uh, sir, you put your mask on or sir, da da da. And person's like, yep, yep, yeah, I'm doing that. That's their that's their I've, court. I've that's never seen anybody argue with a minibus driver. Yeah, they've got the hand of God. I think they do, man. Yeah. The, I think it's the I think it's those electrical lines. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the yeah, yeah, that gives them a little supercharge. When I was in middle school, mm-hmm. I had a bus driver who looked like Stone Cold Steve Austin. <laughs> I'm not kidding. And he, in one hand, had the steering wheel. Uh huh. And in the other hand, he had like, you know what, like those things to like work out your hand muscles, like those things you yeah, squeeze. Yeah, those, those squeezy things. He would crank on that thing in one hand and be driving the bus with the other hand. Wow. And he would rip that thing like until the meat was falling off the bone. Wow. <laughs> like the grip coming off. So he was, he was, um, he was not someone you'd mess with. <laughs> Absolutely not. He could smash you. Yeah, he was... He had a body for WWE. Why didn't he do WWE then? He might have, like, maybe in the past. Um, maybe he injured himself. Yeah, he throwing, had, like, the... Being thrown out of the ring. <laughs> he had that ringside figure, you know? You should have asked him. Yeah. Anyway, so, yeah, just uh, just getting a little a little um, acknowledgement to the, the veterans that do return that, that have a really serious yeah. uh, PTSD. PTSD is big. Another one is, is just depression, because now you're not part of your tribe. Or maybe... Um, think about my buddy mac he hit an ied a a big one it Mm -hmm. actually killed his medic on on the vehicle but mac he broke his back he flew out of the vehicle into the air and landed on his back you know they airlifted him this is just like three months into being there they airlift him out of country he goes back to germany and he's hopped up on meds he's getting he gets chaptered out just because of his injuries Mm -hmm. um you know it's just not sustainable for him to stay in the military so he gets out and now he's back home in new york and he's addicted to painkillers because of his back injury. He eventually overdoses and dies. Yeah. I mean, this is my roommate. Yeah. Actually, he has two kids as well. So I, I go to his funeral. This is my roommate. This is someone I spent just a ton of time with training and, and, and in deployment with, you know, one of my best friends in the military. But I, I go to see his family for the funeral. He His family, where he grew up, is a trailer park. He lived in a trailer park mm-hmm. in like rural New York. And so this was someone I was super close with, did everything with. I had no idea that that's where he came from. Mm-hmm. And like maybe he just wasn't comfortable telling people that, but he was dirt fucking poor. And the way the other people in the community talked about his death, mm-hmm. it was like, oh, like another one of us overdosed and died. Like mm-hmm. it felt like, they do these funerals it was routine yeah yeah it just kind of ate me up that that was the attitude Mm -hmm. and that his two kids were going to grow up there i've never in my life wanted to just take kids with me and and raise them until then i I saw them and i was like i wish i could just take you with me yeah um well he wasn't that to you you to you he wasn't he wasn't that you know just another one he was a unique oh yeah he wasn't unique to them but like right he was creating maybe a new world with you yeah yeah so just yeah it just kind of makes me sick like just thinking how much potential he had and Mm -hmm. how he he got away from this just challenging Mm -hmm. upbringing 
got this opportunity in the military yeah. and that leads to an injury that brings him right back to that community doing the same drugs as everyone else there. Right. But it, it's part of it is, I mean, we talk a lot about, you know, systemic issues, you know, systemic racism, systemic this, systemic that. Everything's systemic. Well, yes. And he was part of a, he was part of a few systems. He was yeah. part of the, the military. That was one system, the healthcare system, uh, which treated his back injury with meds instead of like, you know, maybe there's another way to do that. Maybe we're not going to just prescribe tons of Oxycontin or whatever it is they prescribed him. Maybe yeah. we're going to do this differently. Maybe we're going to change the way we treat pain. And then his community at home and those things came together and killed him. Yeah. In a way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In a way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, he does have agency. He does have choice. But sometimes that those those circles again that you're a part of, you know, I guess I'm I'm gonna go off a little bit on the model, but it's like what it's like. It's almost like they chain together. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, interesting stuff. Yeah, it's just it's just crazy the direction people go after the military. A lot of guys just kind of fall apart, and uh -huh. it's really sad because you know these guys. Some of my buddies or were my heroes at the time, just yeah. because of their role in the tribe. Yeah. But then they get out of the tribe and they completely fall apart. It's just sad to see that breakdown. And then and they become you know good at just a few things, and once they're no longer needed by the military, they're just discarded. Absolutely. You know, um, I saw this thing once. So it was like a meme. It says the only thing I was ever good at was killing people, mm. because he was a veteran. <clears throat> yeah, and then some try to recreate that tribe with the wrong way. There's like several guys I no longer talk to who I serve with mm -hmm. because now they're like proud boys oh. and they want to be a part of that community. Those groups, those domestic violent extremist organizations mm -hmm. are really good at recruiting veterans. Can you talk about that? They look for veterans because they know veterans want a community. They know veterans will respect the sort of structure, the chain of command that they have. Veterans will, will show up. A lot of veterans are already distrustful of the government because of the, maybe the way that they were treated during their service. So that fits perfectly into that Proud Boy ideology, you know, right. or the QAnon, you know, the government's run by pedophiles. Oh, well, that's why my military experience was bad. So it's it's sort of a this perfect storm. You see a lot of veterans being vulnerable to mm -hmm. uh, recruitment to these groups. Fascinating. It's super common. Um, Can you describe the Proud Boys a little bit for people who don't know? Yeah, so they're this group of men in the U.S. domestic politics world who sort of believe in this hyper masculinity i'm not afraid to be a man I'm, I'm, you know, i think that's where the name proud boy comes from mm -hmm. they're a right-wing group who is closely aligned with trump supporter kind of movements um i think they're interwoven with QAnon folks the idea is that they are at war with uh, feminism they're at war with the, you know the college campus kind of liberal mm -hmm. uh, woke crowd they're um, at war it's like yeah, yeah. What? like those people are not they're they're typing on computers and they're having rallies, um, but they call it you know it's, it's war. They're, yeah. They'll wear uniforms. They'll, they'll have college shirts and khakis. You know these are the yeah. the Jews will not replace us guys with the tiki torches. Okay. Um. You know they like, they try to present themselves as as presentable, but right. um they are a bunch of losers who are looking for a community. I mean they they ought to be called the sad boys. Ah. Uh, <laughs> because it's it's fucking sad. You know that you would choose to spend a beautiful yeah. day during your short existence on this planet in a chat room with a bunch of guys complaining about Hillary Clinton yeah. or, you know. I will say though, to their not credit something, I'm looking for a word that's less than credit. There is a, a male initiation and community that is missing in our culture. And I think like the one place we have it is like an Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm not saying it's male, but I'm saying it's it can be, right? Mm -hmm. That's why I think AA works so well because people are searching for a community. Yeah. And then you have 
things like the military or these political groups that kind of that rush in and fill that gap because we just don't have a sense of purpose anymore i don't think yeah i think it's really low-hanging fruit for these groups mm -hmm. to to offer what they do they'll make you feel you used to be a veteran you used to be in the military you used to shoot guns well here's a place for you where you can still be masculine mm -hmm. you can still you know do guy shit and yeah, yeah not take shit from the libs yeah we'll pose with our guy guns shit. And, like, like yeah there's lots of ways to do guy shit yeah right? it's just yeah. kind of neanderthal thinking was well, Neanderthal like concrete thinking? I mean, you and I are having a guy conversation here. We're being very masculine in our positions and we're kind of, you know, going back and forth in this sort of hard nosed way. Um, yeah. Why does masculinity have to be, oh, I'm going to pick up the gun and go shoot the thing? It's like there's lots of ways you can be a man, just the way there's yeah. lots of ways to be a woman. To be transparent, I, I'm a gun owner. I, Me too. I, yeah, I view it as like a, a tool to be used safely after training. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, not something to fetishize or, or no. take pictures with. You know, to me, that's just the opposite of what responsible gun ownership is about. Yeah. But yeah, you just have this, it's like a, a symbol of toughness. I feel like a lot of them are just acting like teenagers. Like they haven't yeah. grown up. Yeah. You know, they haven't been initiated as men. So they're trying to initiate themselves. Yeah. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, Should we talk about... Um, whatever you want to do, man. Politics. Uh, it's up to you. I think this has been a very cohesive conversation so far. It's pretty. It's been fascinating. I'm I'm ready to keep going, man. Uh, let's do it. So politics. Yeah, I feel like you maybe want to ask about like the stress of being a Capitol Hill staffer, or like you know what's it like in that fast paced environment. Yeah. Um, what's it like on the inside, the belly of the beast, man? I want to know. Like you're out there in the intestines. You're like you're like swimming around <laughs> like a little. Oh, I'm bacteria. in the lower intestines. I'm you're, like way in the, the deep bacteria. Oh, yeah. You're in there. You're sliming you around. Get a good culture out of that. Yeah, yeah. I want to know, man. What's the let's let's put you in the yogurt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm yeah I'm on my way to being Greek yogurt. So politics, Mr. Yogurt. Yeah. So let me, I'll tell you what's hardest for me being a congressional staffer. It's not the stress or the fast paced environment. The, the toughest thing for me is that I am an optimist and working on Capitol Hill is the worst fucking workplace for an optimist, for someone who looks at the glass half full or for someone who's hopeful about what this institution can do you're fucking torturing yourself mm -hmm. with that mentality. There are so many times when I was like, maybe this is a catalyst for us to change and nothing happens. I remember after the Las Vegas shooting, mm -hmm. when a man over a year's time, I, I think he purchased like 55 guns okay, and killed more than 50 people mm -hmm. and injured 500 at that concert by right. the Mandalay Bay. Yeah, I thought wow, one guy did this? This has to lead to some sort of legislating action. This has to be a wake-up call where we say, let's create a universal background check system at least that would alert authorities when a guy is buying more than 50 guns in a year. But yeah, and then of course, you know, I show up to work thinking, you know, maybe maybe we're going to senators introduce legislation, but like, are we going to get a vote on this? Are right. we going to do something? And the answer was no. We're just not going to do shit okay. because this, the news cycle will eclipse this and something else will be going on. You know, I think about being an optimist, showing up to work when Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. And it was, 
I think like a month and a half out from an election. Mm -hmm. And and just in the prior administration, they had denied Merrick Garland a Supreme Court seat because it was an election year. So the optimist in me thought, okay, if they try to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg after they just denied Merrick Garland a a vote, Mm on his nomination that'd be that's too fucked up like there's got to be enough republicans to be like yeah that's really fucked up like let's not do a vote on amy coney barrett but they fucking did it they did it with no shame and when ruth bader ginsburg was voted into her seat she got 96 votes in support of her when bill clinton nominated her 96 percent of the senate voted in favor of her should when amy coney barrett got a vote Mm -hmm. in the senate she got 52 votes you're taking a 96 vote Supreme Court justice and yeah. replacing her with a 52 vote yeah. Supreme Court. So that's just like a sign of how fucked up the situation was, but mm-hmm. also like how partisan these judges are that Trump nominated. And it was just like another example of why my life would have been so much easier on Capitol Hill if I had just walked around being a cynic all day. Yeah. And just thought every day, just rainy cloud over my head. Everyone's fucked up. There's no good people left. There's no meaning. There's no... Yeah. What was your exact role? What would you do? What were your tasks daily? Uh, uh, yeah. So I was a, a military legislative aide. So I advised the senator on military foreign policy okay. issues. So a lot of legislating, a lot of committee hearings. Mm-hmm. The most fun you can have is staffing committee hearings, especially when you're in the minority. Mm-hmm. And the majority party has control of the White House Mm -hmm. or the opposite party has control of the White House because then your job is oversight as the minority, as the Democrats, you know, the Republicans had control of the Senate. They had the White House. Um, So we're the last we're the last opportunity for oversight. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, the administration just does whatever the fuck it wants. Okay. so as a congressional staffer, you show up to hearings with your boss and you get to write the questions that he gets to ask the administration's Mm -hmm. uh, witnesses. And for me, this was a time to think really strategically. How can I fucking get one of these motherfuckers? When Trump sent the National Guard to secure the border and declared it a national emergency, mm-hmm. we brought in the NORTHCOM commander, the, the commander who oversees all U.S. forces in North America. He came into the committee and testified. Um, and I wrote this question for my boss and said, you know, Trump sent all these National Guard troops there in the fall. I think it was the fall of 2018. But then in early 2019, he declares it a national emergency. So the question I wrote is, how is it that you sent troops there? You sent thousands of soldiers to the border. But then after you did that, it became a national emergency. Mm-hmm. So the situation, the security environment deteriorated after you deployed troops there. Mm-hmm. That was our question. And the general was his general O'Shaughnessy. He was unable to answer the question. He, he just had to like stumble over like jargon. You know, the, the administration made a decision, uh, we set the troops and then- What they, do you think the reality was? The reality is that it's just politics. It's just theater. It was not a national emergency. Mm-hmm. How could it possibly be one if you, you've already sent troops there and then became one after? It made no sense. That was like, again, you know, I'm there to do, uh, you know, as cheesy as it is, like I was there to do substantive work and time and again, I, it was just like, this is all theater and we're bullshitting here. I was in committee behind the scenes when the Space Force was developed. Just take a step back. We have a sixth branch of our military mm-hmm. now, and it's called the fucking Space Force. And we have that because Trump like mentioned it offhand at a rally mm-hmm. and then just turned it into policy. But it takes an act of Congress. So we're in committee and all these Republican staffers are like, no, yeah, we're doing this. And we're like, are you fucking kidding me? We we already do. We already have a U.S. Space Command. It's part of the Air Force. Can you describe like, that a little bit so people know. Yeah. So 
the Air Force traditionally owned our assets in space. So like securing satellites, you know, encrypted communications uh, technology that like mm-hmm. sends encryptions and like bounces them off a satellite down to mm-hmm. whatever radio or you know, navigation, GPS equipment. All these space assets and the security of them were, were owned by Air Force. But then Trump just says at a rally, I want a space force. <laughs> so these Republican staffers on Capitol Hill, they're like, yeah, we're just going to take what the Air Force does and rebrand it as Space Force. Mm-hmm. It, it's literally, it's a rebranding because we're already doing all this stuff. Right. We already, it's, it's, it's about capabilities. It's not like we're not putting troops in space with M4s. Right. We're taking existing capabilities and mm-hmm. we're calling it something else. They had no shame about being in meetings, being like, yeah, we think this will make the president happy. Right. We're just doing this to make Trump happy. So it wasn't like a substantive decision right. made after realizing like we need this new. I see. It was just it was just a rebranding branch. what was already there. Yeah, Nothing was created. And then now for the rest of U.S. history, we're gonna have Space men and women walking around in fatigues <laughs> with a name tape across their chest that says Space Force. I feel like Trump got like you know Operation Warp Speed. Like he's borrowed a lot from Star Wars and Star Trek. <laughs> yeah, maybe he's a, a big sci-fi guy. I, I think so because that's it sounds reminiscent of that the lingo. It is. Yeah, it's pretty goofy. Um, and by the way, Operation Warp Speed is something that he sh- he ought to be really proud of. You know, communicate that 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 he has ownership of the success of that program, okay. which was you know a race to to get vaccines to people mm-hmm. to use the the full extent of the U.S. government's capabilities to to create this vaccine quickly, yeah, and then have the logistical backbone to to distribute it. But he doesn't. In, in, in the past couple of weeks, he has a little bit, but well, there's been that thing with that tryst with with, uh, with Candace with, Owens, yeah, it was yeah, hilarious. That, but that's all recent. Like yeah. for the past year, he hasn't been like, everyone go get your vaccine. I did it. Like I would love for him to just be like, success. We we killed it. Well, I think he's torn because his base, I mean, 64% yeah. among the unvaccinated, 60% well, are well, 64% were Trump voters. Right. Yeah. yeah. Among the unvaccinated, 17% are Democrats. Right. So this goes back to our two realities conversation. Right. Where are you getting your information from? Like, it's not a coincidence that 60 plus percent of Republicans. Right. Are uh, uh, comprise the unvaccinated. Right. Like, what did Trump actually do in warp speed? Was he like on the phone with the CDC every day and like hollering at people? Like, what was his like on the nitty gritty? Let's let's give the man a little bit of credit. Like, what what did he do? Well, it's it's the the whole administration, but um, yeah, I mean, it's it's coordination between HHS and DOD and mm-hmm. uh, Department of Homeland Security's uh, you know FEMA. It's creating the logistical ability to distribute the vaccines, and also at the same time, you know, funding programs to do the research mm-hmm. and removing red tape. I'm assuming. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely. So you know, that's a great. That's like a big accomplishment. But on the communication side, Trump and his administration didn't. I mean, he he was totally comfortable telling people to ingest ingest bleach, to ingest uh, horse dewormer. You know, like all these random. Yeah, he, he was. He, but like with strange, the vaccine, they just don't. He's a strange guy, isn't he? Yeah. I don't. I don't understand. I think he. I think he just. He plays to his base, and he gets confused. And now I know Alex Jones is going after him, calling him evil and stuff. <laughs> is and, he? Yeah. I feel like in the there were fewer Alex Joneses in the past. And now there's so many. Yeah. It's like all of these well, personalities. I, I think it's kind of a mistake. I know it's not technically censorship because Facebook's a private company and YouTube's a private company. Mm-hmm. But I think that the more you censor, the more it's like when you put an animal in a cage, it starts to lose its mind. Yeah. You know? And I think that you, you need to have these conversations. You know, I've like, I want the the doctors and the epidemiologists and the, and the anti-vax people to get in a big room and fucking have a huge ass debate and let it last two weeks. 
Yeah. Know, I think the anti-vaxxers would get smoked, <laughs> but I think it needs to fucking happen. You yeah. Know? Like we need to bring this stuff out into the open. I think, I think it's insane that we try to just put it all in a box. Yeah. You know? Facebook, they did something interesting because they have an oversight board that actually makes the decision on whether or not Trump can have his account. They deleted his account and then they, so that's a, and then, then this board that is not beholden to Zuckerberg or anything, it, mm-hmm. it makes its own independent decisions and it's comprised of academics and human rights activists and technocrats. But then they get to be sort of the Supreme Court and make a decision mm-hmm. about whether to reinstate the account or not. Um, but they came to the decision that it should actually stay deleted. Um, oh, really? Yeah. And they've, they've been in, comp- in conflict with Facebook, you know, many times about their content management decisions. Mm-hmm. But on this one, they actually decided that it, it made sense for Trump not to have an account. And I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention January 6th. We're, we're yeah. coming up on one year. I think that was really the moment when these tech companies just thought this guy is too unwise. He's, he's too, he's too dangerous. He's too dangerous. He does not have a place on our platforms. And these are private companies that, that are allowed to make that decision. Yeah. I mean, I remember when he was, you know, while the thing was happening, he was telling them, you know, I love you, but go home. Like he was saying, go home. But oh, he's really good at, at double one foot on each side. Yeah. yeah weird. Totally. Really weird. And I think he was sort of going with the energy of like, we're going to do something. Like if you, if you look at his speech beforehand, there's no clear directive that, hey, go storm the Capitol. But the energy's there. Yeah. And I feel like he sort of unconsciously surfs it. Well, and he used these platforms even before the election happened, but like certainly right after it to tell all these people to get them foaming at the mouth thinking that the election was stolen. Yeah. So he's telling them that they've been lied to and that the yeah. election was stolen yeah. to anger them. He brings them in the proximity of the Capitol yeah. on the day that votes are being certified. Right. So he... He knew what he was doing. He did everything without explicitly saying it. Yeah, I mean, it's not a coincidence that they were rallying, screaming about stopping the steal on the yeah. same day that. Like I remember when the election was was still happening, and and there was predictions for a long time that there was a, there was going to be a lot of mail in votes, which means that there was going to yeah. be a blue wave in the middle of the night because they're going to be opening physically opening ballots, and that physically yeah. takes longer to do. Mm-hmm. And Trump in the morning is like, "Well, I was winning this state, and I was winning that state, and I was winning this state, and then I woke up this morning, and I don't know what happened. Something happened in the middle of the night in the dark, yeah. you know." And he had that shit planned. Oh, it was all precipitated. Also, oh, like some of these, you know, each state. Did it differently. Some states started counting mail-in ballots right away. Most, mm-hmm. a lot of Democratic states, a lot of Republican states wanted to muddy the water, mm-hmm. so they waited until the election night to start opening up the mail-in ballots to sow confusion. So I believe you, but do you have proof of that? Yeah. I, okay. Yeah. How, how do you know that that's really what happened? That they because that that's been were... reported on by credible journalists. Again, the credible journalists. Who yeah. are these people? You lie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Your sources. What are your sources? Who? Which credible journalists? So anyway, um, do you have more on Paul? Do you want to get into January six a little bit more? Yeah. I mean, I, I can tell you how I felt on January six when I first started working on Capitol Hill. Someone said to me, "You should never get used to working on in this building. Like, you should never be." Just like take it for granted that you work in the Capitol. Don't take it for granted walking on this ornate tiled hallways with paintings from the Italian painter Bermidi and, uh, you know, these golden trimmed rooms with these chandeliers and don't ever get used to that. Um, mm-hmm. You should be in awe, actually, every time you walk into this building. And so I took that with me and, and just revered the building and just the institution and, and the work so much the whole time I was there. And so to watch people break the windows and come in and just shit on what is supposed to be 
the model for democracy and legislative bodies in the world and to just like kick their feet on the desk and steal stuff, attack police officers. I felt like someone broke into my home. I felt violated, like mm -hmm. someone had, yeah. it, it felt like the people's house was disrespected in mm -hmm. the most just cavalier, vile. In a way they broke into their own home. Yeah. They yeah, said, well, it's the people's even... house, it's our house. Well, you violated your own house. Yeah. Fuck yeah. you. Yeah. You know? Um, and it's just like, it's if you can't have a minority, then you don't have democracy. Like if you can't have people just go, okay, we lost this one. Mm -hmm. We're going to try hard to do better next time. If that's not happening, then it, this is Fort Sumter and it's 1861 yeah. because you, these people want a civil war. Mm -hmm. People have to be willing to just say, we lost this one. And the majority has to go, yeah, we won, but we're going to govern for everybody. But the idea that because we lost, now we're going to break off and like do our own thing mm -hmm. and attack you, that's really disturbing and a, a sign that, that democracy is on the backslide in America. Um, right. So no one wants to see that. Okay. Dan, that was a long interview. And ben, I am flattered and, and just... Uh, Really enjoyed talking to you. Yeah, it was fun. This uh, is and Happy New Year. We happy, didn't say that. Uh, oh yeah, it's happy. It's in. it's the stupid ass 2022 year. Yeah, this is the first thing I've done this year. The first thing I will look. No matter what happens for the rest of 2022, I go. Is, oh, I, I know how I started my year. I, I talked to Ben. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and 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 if this is that's a big compliment because uh, Dan is a ladies' man. <laughs> like I've actually, I could be on a date with anybody right I walk, now. I've been walking. I've walked him down. I see him walk down the street, and women will actually come out of their apartment. <laughs> <laughs> and and like start following us and they're i think and i like to think it's me it's probably you it might it's, be it's definitely not me one because i know how i know what, how? because when you walk down the street alone and i watched you get 50 percent more <laughs> follow you <laughs> <laughs> anyway i shouldn't put myself down um, <laughs> that's right you're you're amazing i'm amazing you're i'm awesome beautiful i'm beautiful got a nice haircut now got a nice haircut i'm you know i wear you're clothes a i'm a star um Anyway, Dan, thank you so much. Oh, yeah. And kudos <laughs> to you, listener, if you got all the way through this. If you made it here. How was your drive to Los Angeles? Yeah, we want to know where you are. <laughs> we want to know if you've eaten, if you're still breathing. Yeah, are you okay? Do you need to use the bathroom? Check your vitals. Have you taken your meds? Yeah. Um, all right. Well, thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you for listening. Should you have any questions or wish to be a guest on my show, you may email me at benjaminrusick at gmail.com or check out my website at benjaminrusick.com. Thanks again. And remember, if you ever find that your plate is full, well, consider getting yourself a larger plate. <laughs>